welcome everyone to the latest in our Isolation Insights events. Uh, we're using this new Slido system that you, well, you will have noticed because you've logged in on it, but can I encourage you all please to vote in the poll? And the idea is we'll come back to what that poll ends up as after the initial comments by the panelists. Uh, if, you can, if you can limit yourself to one vote each, that would probably be fairer overall. But uh, I see a lot of you have beaten me to it. We've had 64 people voting already. Uh, so today we're tackling the rather minor and trivial question of where does politics go from here? And I'm delighted to say we have a fantastic panel, perhaps my dream panel to discuss this. We have Katie Balls from The Spectator, who's sitting in The Spectator building, as you can see from that fine office. We have David Runciman from the University of Cambridge. And at, well, my top left, there's no point in me saying that because I don't know where they appear to you. Uh, Helen Thompson also from the University of Cambridge. I think the order we've decided on is that Katie will go first, Helen go second, David third, remarks for five, six, seven minutes each. We'll have a bit of a conversation, then open up for questions. So Katie, are you happy to kick off? Sure, I will do my best. Um, so I think looking ahead to where we're going, I think I'm gonna speak briefly about the two main parties to start. And uh, clearly the Conservative Party is the one in government. And I think I remember when that result came through, uh, a lot of, uh, I think, journalists such as myself and some in the lobby thought that we were heralding near a probably more stable government. Uh, it didn't seem hard to do, given what had come before. Um, but I'd never covered a government which had you know, a, a large majority um, from parliament you know, in that position. And I think there was a sense that this would be, you know, it would bring its own challenges, but it would be uh, quite different. And I think we quickly learned um, in the past few months that a majority of 80 isn't actually particularly big in the current climate. Um, several reasons for that. I think one thing that both parties are having to face is that MPs, I think, are more their own people these days. I think partly because you have things like social media, partly because uh, I think if you look at the makeup of the Tory party, for example, I don't think it, I think it's hard to find values which unite every single Tory MP now. Uh, there are a couple, but I, I think it is different. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the economy, but you talk about the economic message of the Tory party. I think that would be much easier to pin down um, 10 years ago than it is now. So I think there are different reasons why uh, the majority of 80 doesn't feel as though we are in stable majority government. Um, I also think that if you look ahead at the challenges this government faces, um, Brexit, which we always knew uh, was going to be a big one, but also the fact that we're still living with coronavirus, also the union, I think there's lots of things that are really going to test it. So we're not looking ahead to uh, another election you know, for several years, but I still think it's going to be very bumpy. Um, and I think that looking ahead to where the Tory party is going, there's lots of big questions about not just how do they get through the week, the month with, with things, uh, you know, currently as they are on Brexit, um, you know, on avoiding a second wave or living with a second wave. But ultimately, what is the Tory message in two, three years time? I think it's interesting that uh, Boris Johnson often talks about his, you know, his blue wall MPs, we're referring to that, the red wall. So if we go back to December, and I think it's, it's quite clear that where Boris Johnson believes his biggest achievement was in turning former Labour Hartman's Tory, many for the first time. And that's where he sees the new Tory party. But actually, I think what's really interesting is in the Tory party now, there do appear to be 
two sides is obviously clumsy that there's more but there is a big divide between I would say shire Tories traditional Tories and this new intake of Tory MPs and while I think that if you're looking at electoral maps and where the Tory party want to go they see not only keeping those red wall blue wall seats um, but actually building on it as critical I think it is bringing up lots of questions that were are going to become clearer in terms of the divides in the in the coming year and beyond and I think Brexit and uh, you know it's one area where I think there is the most agreement in the Tory party that would have sounded strange a year ago well two years ago um, but actually I think Brexit is where most MPs are united so just before we went on air we heard that uh, you know, when the government you know legal lawyers their top legal lawyer has uh, stepped down and um, this is rather ominous because we are expecting an internal market bill to be published tomorrow and there are big questions about whether Boris Johnson is going to renege on uh, parts of the withdrawal agreement that he and all these MPs signed up to um, in that general election. So I think there are questions which I'm sure the other panelists are going to discuss in terms of what it means for wider society. But I, I still think on Brexit, we are at a point where, although I think we're entering a tumultuous period and we could be leaving about a deal and lots of MPs do not currently believe that is going to happen, there is more agreement on that than lots of other challenges facing this Tory party. Um, so I think there'll be questions about if once we see this bill, you know, about uh, respect to the law, what that means. But ultimately, if I would say where the Tory party is going to have to work out what it wants to say, I think the economy is going to be a huge one on this. Um, we have been hearing about tax rises from the Chancellor. Um, I think the problem is not just that Tory MPs all have a different opinion what the tax rise should be. Many don't accept there should be tax rises in the first place. Now, some of them, because they have different ways they want to get growth, others just do not think that you need to have an economic policy that really connects those things. So I think that's a big question facing them. So I think Tory party in terms of identity, I think we've got to look at the economy, also on cultural walls. Um, I was recently talking to someone about what the Tories' message at the next election might be. And given that every time there appears to be a difficult vote, it's either been pushed back or moved, they were suggesting it might be, you know, we delivered Brexit, and we stuck up for British values. And it could be that that we're heading to because all the reforms look very tricky. So I think that in terms of the Tory party, I, it is still undergoing a period of change. I don't think it's cohesive from that new voting coalition yet. Um, and I think just briefly on Labour, we have Keir Starmer. And I think it is interesting how quickly Labour, Labour's fortunes appear to have changed, not in terms of are they going to win an election, but just in terms, I think, the sense among Labour MPs, um, more broadly, they feel like they're suddenly in a very positive place. Two years ago, if you spoke to a Labour MP, it felt more that you were acting as a councillor when you spoke to them. Um, they were very traumatised, lots were thinking about leaving, some did. And I think that what Keir Starmer has managed to do in a way is bring back a feel-good factor to the Labour Party for those inside it. And, and there's been a big focus on values in doing that. And uh, change, trying to show that, you know, going away from Jeremy Corbyn values and going to traditional British values. But I think the big test for Labour um, will ultimately be what are the policies going to be? Because I think Keir Starmer's done a very good job at trying to define himself and show that he is different. I think where we still have lots of doubt, however, is where does Labour stand on things like the economy? They seem to choose a position uh, or that they think the Tories are going to be forced into. That's how our position is at the moment. But I think clearly he's going to have to start saying more about where Labour sits. So I think those are 
broadly speaking where the challenges are and just looping it in I think if you're thinking about the electorate more generally um who are their voters at the next election because if we are losing Scotland, because we haven't even spoken about Scotland, and you know SNP support continues to surge, Keir Starmer is going to win, need to win not just a red wall back, but also uh, you know Lib Dem Green voters. And I think there's a question of his current values message whether you can actually unite both sides. Thanks ever so much, Katie. Just a couple of things maybe to ponder. You don't have to answer them now, but things that we might come back to. I mean, firstly, you said the Tories are united on. Brexit. Just how united is an interesting question. And in the playbook uh, email, I think it was yesterday, they were talking about waiting for the for the reaction from moderate conservatives to rumours about uh, plans to rewrite parts of the withdrawal agreement. Are the Tories loyal on Brexit to a fault, or is there a line over which some of them do not want the government to tread? Uh, and the second thing on culture, I think it's really interesting. I don't know if you saw the piece on Conservative Home today by Scott Benton, who's the MP for Blackpool, the Tory MP for Blackpool South, who basically seems to be saying, for a quick skim of it, uh, that culture is where we win this. Uh, it's on social values that we win this. And it would be interesting maybe at some point to talk about whether, I mean, you seem to imply that that was the case from the other side, if you like, by saying that the Labour was weak on this. But I'd like to come back on that if possible. But for the moment, Helen, if you're ready... Yeah. So I'm going to say something about the economy and then um, something about Brexit and its um, relationship um, to both British domestic politics around the, around the Union and potentially sort of bigger geopolitical questions. So the first thing I would say is, is I think that you know, it's inescapable that the politics of the next few years is going to be dominated by the economy. You know, there simply is no economic reset button that takes us back to the beginning of this year if and when a, a COVID vaccine um, emerges. You know, we are living through what is going to be a full-scale economic um, crisis. I think if you, turn, if you look, uh, you know, like around the world in terms of the uh, hit in, in terms of growth, it's really uh, unprecedented, particularly happening in so many economies um, at the um, same time. And in this country, we've had a deferred employment shock because of the, the furlough scheme. And that has saved us from what's happened in the United States, where you had much sharper millions of people in a very short period of time being made um, unemployed. So the end of the furlough scheme is in itself going to be an employment shock. Um, and it's going to come, though, um, with something that I think wasn't really anticipated at the beginning of all this, which is a real, you know, like reluctance, as we've seen, both from many employees and from employers um, to have people go back to working in offices um, in, in, in person. And this has got the potential to deliver a, another employment shock on top of the one that the end of the furlough scheme would, would already um, be, um, be bringing about. And I think that in some sense in this country, we've got out of the habit of really understanding what the politics of employment and unemployment looks like. Um, because on a comparative sense, we escaped on the employment side relatively unscathed from the, the 2008 shock. Indeed, if you, even if you go back to the, the early 1990s recession, that actually the recovery in the British economy from the unemployment in the, in the early 90s came quite quickly. It was in sharp contrast to what happened um, to the, the 1980s. Whereas, as we know, if we go back into the, into the 80s themselves, that then unemployment was high and it was persistent and it completely shaped the politics um, of that um, decade. The second thing I say about the, the economy is, is that we've essentially 
doubled down on what happened in response to the 2008 crash. So the response of policymakers is essentially being lots more quantitative easing to facilitate lots more debt. Now that is almost certainly um, necessary, but it's not benign in terms of um, in terms of its um, consequences. If we go back to what happened in the decade after 2008, um, QE um, quantitative easing fuels wealth inequality. We can already see an you know an even more sharp than after 2000 and in the first years after 2008 dissonance between what's going on in share markets and what's going on in the um, in, in in the real economy, and, and this is going to mean that the inequality aspects of the post 2008 decade are going to reappear even more strongly, I think, uh, in, in, in in the coming years, and then the central question is going to be what to do about all this debt. Now, in one sense, I think that the answer is, is that there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can be done about it. And so as long as investors are willing to carry on buying the bonds that governments um, issue, so long as central banks then buy them back, um, essentially, it's going to um, continue. But it's, there is going to be a contest, I think, about how long this situation can continue without an inflationary risk. And there is going to be a big political question about who gets to decide what this debt is used for. And I think that's probably in some sense going to be more important than the question about whether they're going to be tax rises or not to, to deal with it. Because in one sense, there is now so much debt that tax increases are not going to make really any difference um, to the, um, the risks um, involved. The third thing on the economic side, I think, is a question of why there is no reset is, is because of what's gone on geopolitically um, since the COVID um, crisis. And that is about the accelerated breakdown of the US-China relationship. Now, obviously, the big uncertainty in this is, is what happens in the American election, which in itself, I think, is sort of potentially a, a destabilizing um, factor, given the context in which it's um, taken place. But uh, if Trump were to be reelected, then that obviously is going to intensify the decoupling um, of the United States um, from um, China. And it's going to mean that a Trump administration, a second Trump administration, is going to be even more confrontational with the not just the EU, but Britain too, um, about the issues both on the trade side, EU-US trade, but also um, US-China um, trade and its technological competition and its implications for um, Europe than the first um, Trump administration, this Trump administration um, has um, been. There's also a big um, World Trade Organization case um, looming supposedly for resolution, which would allow the EU to, to take uh, if the EU were you, if the EU were to win it, to take significant trade sanctions against the United States, so the overall trade environment in which that this, uh, in which we're dealing with this economic crisis, uh, is is anything but is anything but stable. Now on the on the Brexit side, I think that two really significant things have happened uh, in the context of the politics of of Brexit over the last um, six months. Um, also, the first of them is what's happened in um, domestic um, politics in, in Britain, and that is both the fact that Keir Starmer has become leader of the Labour Party and he has clearly moved the Labour Party into a position where it is not making that much criticism of the government's Brexit policy. Now, that may change over the next uh, months, but I think it was quite a, a crucial moment. I think it was around June time when Keir Starmer made it clear that he wasn't really going to oppose um, the government's decision not to pursue an extension to the um, to the transition. I think, though, in terms of the union, that things are a lot more difficult than they were before the COVID crisis began, because what the crisis 
the COVID crisis has uh, exposed is, is just how dysfunctional even Britain's existing, or I should say the United Kingdom's existing constitutional arrangements are um, for dealing, governance arrangements for dealing um, with a crisis. And this has not only caused clearly a lot of frustration for the government in London, but it has also strengthened, as far as the Scottish Nationalist government's concerned, is the opportunity for um, Scottish independence. Now, whether that will come about is another, is, a, is another question, but I think part of the context in which we might situate the government's concerns about Northern Ireland at the moment is a realisation of just how difficult maintaining this union with all the um, its internal complexities on top of what was agreed in the withdrawal agreement um, is. And the final thing I would say is, is that the state aid question has really changed as a consequence um, of, um, of, co of, of the COVID crisis um, because state aid has just become much more politicised than it was before. And it's become politicised in part because of what's gone in the, in the EU, which has effectively suspended parts of its state aid regime in order to deal with the, uh, to deal with the COVID crisis. So the EU's position, I think, looks a lot more difficult than it was before the crisis in terms of what it wants from Britain, because to say that, um, that Britain is going to stay bound to an EU state aid regime that is itself effectively suspended in order to deal with an economic emergency in which the Commission acts as, as the de facto arbiter of what rules can, what freedoms can be used under the suspended um, rules, I think will be, will be hard for anybody's government to, to swallow um, going um, forward. And that is supercharged, if you like, by the China question, the breakdown of the China relationship, or, the, or the, 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 at least on the European side, the, the deeper complications of the China relationship, because you have Macron in particular wanting to use the language um, of European industrial sovereignty and European state aid in order to deal with, with Chinese um, competition. But I think it does mean that regardless of whether there is a, um, a, a, a trade agreement at the end of this year um, or not, that the question of state aid in Britain and its implications for Britain's relationship with the EU is going to be a really significant regardless of whether that agreement is signed or not. So even if we end up with an agreement, there's still going to be lots of political contest about state aid. If we don't end up with an agreement, for the time being anyway, and it becomes something that is, is, is where the government's looking to negotiate it in the future, it's going to be a really crucial part of that landscape. Thanks, Helen. I mean, all you've convinced me of is we probably need a series of events to go through some of the issues that you've raised. I should say, actually, I should have said in my introduction that for those of you who don't know, who I imagine are very few, you should uh, have a listen to Helen and David's podcast, Talking Politics, which is always excellent. Uh, just a couple of things coming from what you've said, again, just as pointers for things we might talk about. You, you raised that question about what will the debt be used for, which seemed to dovetail with Katie's point, which is what the hell is conservative economic policy? Has there ever been a moment when we've been less certain about what the governing party wanted to do economically. Uh, that would be something that would be nice to touch on. The other thing is, given what you said about Trump, uh, sort of begs the question as to whether this, this US election is a lose-lose one for the British government, because Trump might be tougher on trade, but I can't see Biden prioritising trade talks with the United Kingdom either. So who, who should number 10 be hoping wins this election if, if there are problems on both? And the whole Scotland thing we'll come back to, not least because there are several questions from the audience. Do keep answering the poll, by the way, all of you. I think we have an under 50% turnout on the poll, so I'd like to bump that up a bit if possible. So, David, while they're all doing that, over to you. Thanks. Um, so you've asked me to take a step back and 
but more broadly what this means for democracy um i think we can be pretty confident that the pandemic the last six months and the next six months are going to have a profound effect on democratic politics everywhere and it's going to be an effect that will play out not in the next two to three years but in the next five to ten to fifteen years it's much more like and it picks up on what helen said it's much more like 2008 you're five years on from 2008 pretty hard to say how it had impacted politics 10 years on some very surprising things had happened and we were able with hindsight to trace them back but you couldn't see them coming we're going to be really surprised and and it's similar because this crisis like the last one has revealed our dependence on the state our vulnerability to the state our vulnerability to the politicians who run the state and their incompetence. It's going to produce, as Helen said, significant winners and losers that's changed the dynamics of politics. And that is something that will percolate through politics. It's just not the case that you go through something as big as this and you can track it. If something big happens and six months later or 12 months later, something explicable results from it. I'm pretty sure British democracy is going to survive. Um, is Indian democracy going to survive this? I have no idea. Is American democracy going to survive? I was pretty confident before. I'm still pretty confident, but I wouldn't bet everything on it. Um, we're going to be shocked 10 years on. But if I knew, I'd tell you, I have no idea what the shock's going to be. So I just want to say something about two trends in British politics that I think um, we can think about in the longer term rather than the shorter term. And it touches on something Katie talked about and Helen as well. So one is, I feel like I've been waiting my lifetime for the two that stranglehold of the two-party system to break in Westminster. And every time I think it's coming, it turns out it's not. And so I've given up. And maybe at the point you give up, it happens. But anyway, 30 years is long enough to wait. So I just think, and the last election, it's true of the American election as well. It survives being tested to absurdity. Trump versus Biden, that's the choice, seriously. But it is the choice. Corbyn, Corbyn's Labour versus Johnson's Conservatives, that's the choice. But it was the choice and it was a real choice and people made it. And actually the choice now makes a bit more sense than it did then. Starmer brought some of the sense back into it, I think. Um, I, I don't think that the stranglehold of the two parties is going to break because the electoral system is not going to change. If you change the electoral system, as in Scotland, you absolutely break it almost straight away. Scotland's not a two-party state. But even the presence of the SNP in Westminster has done almost nothing to shake it. I think the thing that is more likely to build is the bigger challenge. And that's something that really, I think, has been visible over the last 10, dec last 10 years, last decade. And that is the, the challenge to representative democracy itself. So not an anti-democratic challenge, not sort of authoritarianism or fascism, but there are many ways of doing democracy. Representative democracy is just one. We, we, I think we'd forgotten that a couple of decades ago. It's just one way of doing it. And I think it's really struggling. <clears throat> this, this system with elections as its focus, professional political parties, a professional political class, a pretty narrow professional political class. The kinds of people who go into politics are not representative of the wider public <clears throat> still. Um, their competence has been tested and I think exposed in various ways. And it's built, and you've seen it building over 
recent years. So I think the referendum was a manifestation of this, the Brexit referendum, both the fact of it and the result of it. Not, it wasn't some you know, internal Tory party management issue for David Cameron. It was genuinely driven in part by a sense, both among the professional political class and among large swathes of the, the British electorate, that certain questions were not being discussed in a representative democratic system, particularly a two-party system, but maybe in any system, because it's not being discussed in many European systems either. Voices were not being heard. Different means had to be found to allow people to express themselves democratically. I think you see it really acutely around climate. So we haven't touched on it, I don't think, but climate change is the central political issue of the 21st century. And I really am not optimistic that representative democracy is well set up to tackle climate change. Representative democracy is reactive, that's its strength. When something goes wrong, eventually, usually, manages to sort it out. It's not proactive. It never has been. And climate change is a proactive problem. And whether it's Extinction Rebellion, um, whether it's increasing demands for forms of citizen assembly, deliberative democracy, these things are happening on the fringes of our politics, but they're coming closer. The sign that people are so agitated now about Extinction Rebellion, it's coming closer. And these are expressions, not of, it's not anti-democratic Extinction Rebellion. These are expressions of frustration with a representative democratic system, professional political class, that not only is non-representative in lots of really important ways, but may well be inadequate in really important ways. I think representative democracy has one massive inbuilt advantage, which is why it's survived the places where it has survived so long, which is that most people don't want to do politics with their lives because it's boring and they've got better things to do. You know, love, work, play, money matter more to most people than politics. And representative democracy, its great advantage is that even if you hate them, you can let the politicians get on with it. But politics is, it's impinging on our lives and the, the virus has shown it in ways that's really hard to escape. I mean, being locked down makes it really hard to think, well, politics is kind of something I'll leave to other people. That's going to accelerate it. And then we all know that I think um, the digital revolution, but particularly the social media revolution of the last 10 years, is going to accelerate it. And it's turbocharging as we speak. Twitter, Instagram, these things are an affront to representative democracy. I mean, they, they, you know, they really, in many ways, scandalize it. And they're also democratic. These are democratic platforms. They're not run democratically. They're run by autocratic tyrants, people like Mark Zuckerberg. But they are democratic in the sense that they allow a voice um, that cannot be heard for many people in other ways. So I would say finally that if I had to say what's going to happen in the longer term, five, 10 years, we've got in Britain a political system that seems locked in, two party, maybe the next party will get a turn next time, but it, it, it still looks hard to see how it breaks open. And then we've got growing frustration with representative democracy with other kinds of democratic outlets wanting to be seen and heard. And that contest, very unpredictable, but I think over five, 10 years, something's going to give there. And that may be where the surprise is. So it's not so much a surprising election result or a surprising, but something actually does give in the end that this way of doing politics cannot accommodate people's desire for change. I am at some point, I hope, going to push you a bit on that. 
something is going to change in the sense that if, if, if what you're what you're hinting at is that representative democracy itself as a system might be the thing that gets challenged rather than focusing on the ballot box and uh, results of elections what what could take and I know you said we're going to be surprised I'm not asking you to predict I'm just asking you to sort of sketch out maybe alternatives before I do that let me just turn to this poll and just see if any of you are in the least bit surprised I was a little bit surprised so we said what's going to be the biggest political headache over the next 12 months for the government? And the options were an SNP majority in May next year, the economic and political fallout from Brexit, the unemployment caused by the end of furlough, a more united Labour Party or a second wave of COVID. And the results were a united Labour Party got 2% of the vote, second wave got 17, unemployment got 20, uh, sorry, uh, I should have had SNP majority got nine, uh, Unemployment shot got 21, but the clear winner, interestingly enough, was navigating the economic and political fallout from Brexit at 51%. That, that slightly surprises me, actually. I don't know if any of you want to react to that. Do you, would you agree with that, that that is the biggest political challenge the government is going to face? If I, if I can say very briefly, it's the most predictable one. So the, you know, the reason it's hard to talk about the second wave is that there is a scenario in which that would overwhelm any other challenge. Mm. But of course, there's another scenario in which actually the worst is behind us. And we genuinely don't know. I think the, my guess is the reason that one comes top is that that is going to be a challenge come what may. Helen? Yeah, I am. Well, I'm not saying I'm surprised because that's making a comment on people's opinions. But I mean, I think that I don't think that there's any reason any longer to think that in political terms for the government, that the problems of Brexit are going to compare with the problems of the economic situation. And in good part, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that, from the, which actually fits also with Casey's point about relative unity within the Conservative Party, that the politics of the situation, because of the result of the last general election and because of the Labour Party's shift and the fact that Keir Starmer hasn't been contesting really what um, Boris Johnson has been um, doing over Brexit are significantly easier than they were with one big caveat but that big caveat is a Scottish question that actually features as a separate question on, 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 on the poll and even there I would say that it's actually what's happened um, over Covid and what has that is exposed about the difficulties of the constitutional arrangements, not just the constitutional arrangements actually, but the administrative decision-making apparatus of the UK state that have actually made the Scottish question more difficult than it was at the beginning, at, at, at the beginning of this uh, year. And in some sense, I think that you know, Brexit can, can feature so highly because it is, as David suggested, it's a, it's a known unknown. And that the, the, the fact of the matter is about the economic situation is that we don't quite understand yet what the scale of the difficulty is because we haven't actually hit what I still think is a double employment um, shock to come. And because we've been acclimatized out of understanding how bad unemployment, uh, how bad unemployment can be because the British economy, whatever else can be said about it over the last few decades, has done well on keeping people in jobs. Those jobs may have been insecure often, and they may not have been particularly um, well, well, well paid, but we haven't had the politics of mass unemployment since the 1980s. And I think we're in danger of forgetting what it looks like. 
Katie, I can put the, uh, more specific question to you based on, on, on the poll finding. Do you think Keir Starmer has handled Brexit well today? And do you think he's going to have to adapt his handling of it in the weeks and months to come? To be honest, I think if we're talking since Keir Starmer became Labour leader, I think it's really hard to assess how he's handled Brexit because to me, I have to scratch my head slightly to think what he has done on Brexit. If we're talking about what he did when he was serving in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, we know that he was vital in moving them, the party to a position more supportive of a second mm -hmm. referendum. People behind the scenes say he played a very active role. It delights number 10 that they can call him a Remainer lawyer. And there's some doubt as to how effective it is as, as an attack line. I think there's quite a the level of anti-lawyer sense in the country that perhaps some believe. Um, but I think since becoming Labour leader, it, it goes back to ultimately who is Keir Starmer trying to win over, keep on side, look to. And I don't think Keir Starmer completely knows the answer to that yet. And I think that kind of goes some way to explaining why Labour are putting their punches slightly here. But I also think, I mean, it is just a tricky territory for them. And I think it's interesting the poll finding because... It feels, apart from this week, this week Brexit is back at the front of the news agenda. Since Boris Johnson uh, won his majority of 80, he's wanted to have this Brexit government, but he hasn't really got his way. We've been talking about, uh, you know, a, a public health crisis for, for most of the time he's been in power. So it feels like Brexit has been away from the news agenda. I think it, it's getting back to that. And that probably means Keir Starmer and he is, is coming under more pressure to have a position. But I think it's something for several reasons he doesn't want to do because, and again, we're going back to Scotland and all these conversations slightly on the edge, but huge questions on Scotland in terms of independence, but also just in terms of if it is a country that is ultimately majority SNP for a long time, where does Labour win seats? And I think the really tricky thing for Keir Starmer is if you say Scottish Labour is not coming back in a significant capacity, um, the seats that Keir Starmer would need to win in terms of the different attitudes towards Brexit, very difficult to see how you do that by, talk, by talking about Brexit. In a way, I think that's, you do it by not talking about Brexit. Okay, I'll come back to it. But just while we're on Scotland, because I feel we should mention there's a really interesting question from uh, David Martin saying, is there anything that the UK government can do to save the union? Or is the future of the UK going to be settled in Scotland? Is it, is it effectively out of the hands of the UK government now? Or are there things that, that the government can do to strengthen the union? I mean, I suppose the obvious thing the government can do is refuse a referendum. But, uh, or win it. Yeah. Inflate it better than they fought the Brexit referendum and learn the lessons. And you know, the good thing about referendums, if you're fighting them, is there's quite a lot of uh, case studies now to draw on and try and work out how to not screw it up next time. Unless you draw exactly the wrong lessons, as arguably Which might have occasionally been. happens. Yeah. But, but, but Helen, do you think, is that if, if you were advising the British government on its union strategy, what would you say they should be doing to try and alter sentiments in Scotland? Well, I think it's, it, it's actually very hard for the present government um, to do that. I mean, its best strategy in some sense, although it's certainly obviously a, a risky one, is, 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 as David said, to allow a referendum to happen and, and then to win it. I think that it, it's hard to get round a, a paradox, though, or it's not, perhaps it's not quite a paradox, is that you know, the best thing the Conservatives could do for the union would not be to be not in power for a while, would be to lose the next general election because so long as the the union um 
the, the electoral politics of the union keep producing conservative governments at Westminster, that is destabilizing um, for, for, for the union. On the other hand, as we know, as Katie's been saying, um, the Labour's position in Scotland, the very fact there is uh, an issue about Scottish secession um, from the union makes it really quite difficult for there to be any party in power in Westminster other than the, 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 the Conservatives. So I think that, that in some sense, this is a reason why there, there isn't really any alternative in the medium term anyway to, to, to holding a referendum and um, the British government, whichever party indeed is in, in power, um, taking its chances um, over, over winning it. And I think that if we bring Brexit back into it, is, is that it is also the case, as we know, uh, and I think has been demonstrated reasonably clearly since the, since the, um, the referendum um, result on, 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 on Brexit, that Britain's departure from the, the European Union does make the, the practical material case for Scottish independence more difficult. Can I just say one thing, because it touched on Helen said we've forgotten what the politics of employment and unemployment looks like. Even more recently, the politics of currency questions was a big part of British politics. We understood it in relation to the euro, and then it was a huge issue in the 2014 referendum. And we'd kind of moved away from that. I think we've forgotten because other things have taken its place. You have a Scottish independence referendum. The question of the currency is central again. And that does give the British government... Um, some leverage, which can be used either in a positive way or in a, for a very negative fear-based campaign, which they did last time. But currency questions, I mean, Helen will, I think, agree with me on this. Currency questions do not go away just because we don't talk about them. Mm. My first instinct on listening to Helen is that she wouldn't be a government advisor for very long if her first piece of advice to the prime minister was lose the next election if you want to keep Scotland. But uh, Anyway, I mean, there's, a, there's another there's a question from Noella O'Neill, which is so broad, I, I wasn't sure that I would ask it, but it's, it opens up lots of lines of inquiry that you've touched on. And the question is, has populism changed the political landscape forever? Uh, which, is, which is massive, but it kind of nudges us towards some of the things that David was saying, which is that alternative forms of engagement are on the rise. And it might be that over the medium term, they have an impact on the workings of our system. Can you, are you happy to try and flesh out what you were hinting mm -hmm. at, David, when you were talking Yeah, about sure. It? I mean, briefly, I, so th the word populism is important and we use it. But in a way, I think for this question, we shouldn't get too stuck with it because populism is more symptom than cause of the thing I was talking about, which was a desire, frustration with and a desire to get beyond or get round some of the limitations of representative democracy populism then because we're still stuck with representative democracy gets channeled through representative institutions and often comes unstuck because it has done in various places um maybe even in this country um but you know nothing changes the political landscape forever a changing political landscape keeps changing and i think one of the interesting things that goes back to what we were just talking about so one of the obvious outlets for frustration with representative democracy is a ref is referendums and if you look around the world they've been on the increase almost everywhere in stable, established, representative democratic systems. Um, politicians have been reaching for them much more often, partly in response to demand, and partly because it is a management tool, broad management tool. And in this country, politicians, many of them, are profoundly scarred by the last two referendums and would really like not to keep fighting them. I think, you know, given a choice, there's a slight sort of phobia around referendums. So if you shut up, 
off that is one outlet. It's a crude one, but it's a legitimate one. This thing is going to come out in other places. It's not just going to funnel back into parliamentary politics. It's not going to funnel back into the two main parties. It's not just going to settle down. I think it was an illusion that 2019, big majority, you know, it felt like an election from the 80s or the 70s even, big majority two-party politics was settling British politics down for the reasons Katie said. You think the election result happens and, okay, we're going to get back to something. And it's chaos. It's chaos. And it's partly because there is a build-up of pressure to find other ways. Now, Deliberative Democracy Citizens Assemblies have got a long way to go to get any purchase, but some aspect of that is coming. Street politics, another thing that we sort of forgot about. We look at Extinction Rebellion and we think it's somehow some new fringe thing. Street politics is democratic politics, as long as it doesn't involve outright violence. Um, Civil disobedience and forms of nonviolent protest are real democratic politics. Um, If you do shut off the referendum, I think you increase the likelihood not that representative democracy reorients itself so that it works really well. Because it doesn't, it just doesn't. It's got many virtues, but it's got many weaknesses. Um, these other things will will be on the rise. And there will also be skillful representative democratic politicians who learn, as say Farage did, who learn how to use them in pursuit of power. There will be a democratic politician before too long who works out how to use a citizen assembly to become a prominent, powerful figure in the land. That will happen, just hasn't happened yet. Interesting. Do either of you have anything to add? I've written down about 40 questions, I'm not kidding, we're not gonna get through them all, but do either of you have anything to add on on that sort of macro question? Uh, Don't worry if not, because I wanna turn to it. I mean, there's a conflict there. There's another conflict going on at the moment, of course, which seems to be a conflict between government and civil service, which might be seen as a broader sort of conflict within the, the framework of the British constitution, because we all know, I mean, both big parties were talking about some sort of constitutional review in their manifestos uh, for last year's election. And I suppose a two-part question, the first of which would be, is it good politics to be at war with the civil service? Is it sustainable? Does it impinge on issues of competence that David was talking about earlier? I mean, does this make sense and how long can it go on for, I suppose, is the first thing. Because I don't know if you saw today that another civil service resigned over uh, the issue of whether the government was planning to renege on its legal obligations under the withdrawal treaty. Uh, I think that story is sort of getting filled out as we go. But does, you know, is this just posturing by the government? Is there something more significant? Is it good politics? Is it good po- a good way to approach policymaking? Can, can you sort of unpick what's going on with the civil service? I can, yeah. I can hear Jill Rutter in my head saying that's the wrong question. But anyway. Uh, I mean, I, I think on civil service, I think there are a few, I think it's hard to define how number 10 in this government treat the civil service as one cohesive attitude. I think that there is definitely a general theme, one that's not particularly positive towards the civil service. And we've seen that with lots of the permanent secretaries going. Um, I still think there are a few cases where, for example, um, it can be tempting to weave everything in, in you know, uh, number 10 anti-civil service, it plays to the base. It's also the case that civil service, civil service voters should remain, and that's number 10's view. You know, that that's the theory you hear. Mm. I think that if you look, for example, back to when you had Priti Patel effectively at war with her permanent secretary, her permanent secretary, um, you know, not just stepping down, but giving a public statement, like quite quite extraordinary. I think that that was more to do with a per- 
personal relationship yeah. and specific issues, if that makes sense, rather than this general sweeping. So I think you've got to break it down a bit, but I think it's quite clear that there is a strong sense, both from Boris Johnson's key advisors, and I think you can find various videos on YouTube where Dominic Cummings has said these things at think tanks. Uh, you know, it's, it's not too hard to assign use, use to people. Um, but there's a strong sense that ultimately Whitehall as it currently sits doesn't work. And I think some of that isn't meant personally. Sometimes there are personal grudges. I think this is a number 10 that holds a grudge. Um, but I think that the widest, the wider problems in, I think, this government's view with the civil service is just the way it runs, the idea that you move between departments. Um, the idea, and again, I, I believe civil servants will clearly find things I'm saying here which are unfair and wrong in how I'm describing it, but the sense in government is you move between briefs, you don't have specific enough knowledge, um, there's not a level of self-responsibility or uh, you know, things coming back for your actions. And I think that that's what's driving the, the whole kind of scale of reform. If it's good politics, it's definitely the case that there are people they specifically don't like. Um, we've seen lots of permanent secretaries go. Um, I think that if we're looking as to what this leads to, I think the problem for this government is that there's only so long you can blame other, I mean, you can find ways to keep doing it, but I think there's only so long you can blame uh, other people, key senior figures in departments, um, you know, institutions for decisions before it comes back to you. And I think the issue that number 10 have is the choice to uh, move around lots of permanent secretaries to, to oust or agree that some will go it means that I think that the next time around, if there is a problem and you say, well, it was that person and they were the replacement for the troublesome person, just as a general rule in life, it holds less merit. So I think that it really depends on whether their decision-making in the first place is valid or not, because either they are going to be vindicated in a few years' time and things are running much more smoothly, or you're going to have the same problems. And I think it, it is the case that more responsibility will have to be taken by the government. I suspect if I were a senior civil servant, I would be thinking lecturing us about a lack of responsibility and accountability is a bit rich coming from you lot uh, at the moment because you know and it's interesting in the context yeah, and, of my... and I oh. think to, to be honest and at the same time of course you can look at lots of things the government have done or even recent news articles about not understanding things that they've apparently signed and I think there's plenty to aim at the government there but I think just in understanding why the government are on this mission it goes down to those factors that's what they believe. And can I just say something briefly Absolutely. on it? It connects back to the previous thing. I mean, the other way that on the broader issue of where democracy is heading that this goes is as representative democracy struggles, you get other kinds of democratic impulses, but you also get a desire to take things out of democratic politics. So we haven't talked about the courts. Mm -hmm. The other question with Scotland, you can be absolutely sure if we get to a Scottish independence referendum, the Supreme Court is going to play a role in British politics again. And we saw a bit of what that looks like last time. And it's pretty... Fractious, you know, it's uh, it's quite knife edge stuff on these big questions. I think the relationship with the civil service is similar, particularly around the role of we've seen it in the pandemic, around the role of science and so on. It's not just you've got representative democracy in a kind of groundswell of popular or populist or you know, street level politics. You've got representative democracy and increasingly some questions either because of their complexity, their technical demands, or simply because parliament is not well set up to deal with them, get removed to forms of either professional or expert bodies that are not democratic. Mm -hmm. And that trend is also going to 
get more pronounced over the next five to ten years. Helen, did you want to come in at all? Yeah, I think I think that the uh, the government got itself into a, a, a difficult, uh, a very difficult position um, with the with the civil service um, because of the conjunction, really, of uh, Brexit and its analysis of the civil services. Um, position in relation to to Brexit and then what happened with the, the the COVID emergency. So if you go back to like the the referendum campaign back in 2016 and the people in the Leave campaign, um, Johnson and Govan and, and, and Cummings obviously in, in particular, that the idea that the civil service as it functioned as they saw it was not adequate for dealing with Brexit was there right from the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can you can see it in the ideas that they had when they thought that you know Boris Johnson was going to become leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister after uh, after Cameron quit before you know the the, the two two of them um, self Johnson and um, Gove I mean by that um, self destructed over the Conservative Party um, leadership and then they had the view that um, the civil service um, played its part uh, in the nature of the first withdrawal agreement that was negotiated in a way which they saw, particularly Johnson saw, as Brexit in in uh, Brexit in name only. So right from the start, in some sense, structurally embedded into this government is the idea that the civil service had to be reformed. But the time when they had the opportunity, if they thought they could do that after the 2019 general election, when they had the majority, very quickly then ran into the, you know, a few months later, ran into the pandemic. Um, emergency, at which point this very government that wanted to engage in radical civil service reform um, had to work with the the civil service and the existing policy machinery in order to to deal with an unprecedented um, uh, health emergency and do so at the same time as finding out that all the bits of the union um, didn't work when (laughs) the British government uh, in Westminster had to act as the English government over health and education um, matters in the uh, in, in the end. So I think it was entirely predictable that this turned out to be, you know, a pretty chaotic mess, uh, and that now there's a lots of re- recriminations um, flying around. And I, I, I don't I don't think that the I don't think that the issue is going to go away. I mean, do any of you, have any of you changed your minds on the need for a written constitution? I mean, given the chaos, the mess, the sort of uncertainty, the the, the number of unwritten rules that we've become aware of that seem to structure our system in a very ambiguous way. One question with that, to get it not just written, because it sort of is written, it needs to be codified. Yeah, codified. Is, uh, would we do the democratic version of that, of the codification? I think it, almost certainly there would be, then that would be a point which there'd be huge pressure to have a different kind of representative citizen's body mm. That was involved or would we do the take it out of democratic politics and get a bunch of experts together to sort this mess out that question would then become so acute that i think it would be really hard to do it because there would be very very rival views about how to do it now, the, the trouble with our politics is the how-to questions are almost harder to solve than the what to do questions um, we often have a fairly clear idea of what we should do about some things but because we're stuck with a system which is locked into some rigid structures that are really hard to reform democratic systems that are well established are terrible at reforming themselves i mean you even touched on helen's point even trying to reform the civil service because you're always firefighting and then you know the winners always have some incentives to hold on to a lot of what already happened because it got them into power um it's incredibly hard incredibly hard 
And that's not answering your question. I haven't said, I think we should have one as well. But presu <laughs> presumably question. harder because we're polarized. I mean, that's why I was slightly skeptical yeah. about what you said about citizens assemblies is they, they seem to work in countries that aren't as deeply polarized as this. But my sense about citizens assemblies is there'll be so much fighting about who's on it, what it, what the specific question is, what it, about the process, because we're so divided. Yeah, they, they, they could be uh, just in the way that I said there would be for a constitutional convention. Mm. On the other hand, under these kinds of conditions where there is genuine frustration and there is a lot of evidence that some of those polarizations can be overcome. Um, I think it could go lots of different ways, but I don't think we should assume under current conditions that alternatives to parliamentary representative democracy that are clearly and obviously democratic will just run into the same problems that parliamentary democracy runs into, which is that no one can agree on anything. Um, we never experiment with our politics. We never experiment with democracy because we think if we fiddle around with it, we'll fall back into fascism or something. But we won't. So we should try. But we have experimented in one way over the last couple of decades, haven't we? Which is, and this brings us to the question from Keith Raffin, the former MP and MSP, which is referenda. We've used referendums. Uh, they've become part of our system now. Uh, but his question, and I suppose it feeds more broadly into the questions about the, the challenges to representative democracy, is, that, is, is there a fundamental tension between referendums and representative democracy? And so are referendums, even though we're, we're stuck with them now, it seems to me, a significant part of the problem we face because of the impact they have and because they can pull in an opposite direction to representative politics? That's for anyone, not just for you. Helen, yeah, you Helen, you do it. Well, I think, <laughs> I think one of the things is we've got to recognise is, is that the, the move to referendums uh, has been particularly strong in Europe and it's been particularly strong for a reason. And that is, is that the nature of the European Union um, generates, you know, like referendums. It started doing it, um, you know, in the 1970s, um, when the, the state, the, the group of um, states that are, you know, uh, acceded to the European Union in, in 1973 not Britain, must be noted, in 1973, Britain didn't have its referendum until two years later, started holding referendums on, on membership. This is not something that any of the, the six states that originally formed the European Economic um, Community did. And then some of those states went on to start having referendums on treaties that the, the EU um, generated. Uh, the original six um, e states in, uh, in, the, in, 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 in the early years. So... In one sense, you can say that if Britain leaves the, the European Union or Britain is leaving the European Union, has left the European Union, then that particular pressure for referendums goes with it. I think the difficulty, though, again, goes back to the, the Union because we've already had the precedent of the Scottish referendum in 2014. We've got a strong demand with the Scottish government for um, a, another one. There's obviously the possibility of things in uh, uh, of a poll, a border poll in relation to Northern Ireland um, at some point um, as well. And because of the fact that the constitutional changes that were made by the Blair government in particular left the governance arrangements for England in a void, we've actually ended up having to have really emerged through this crisis, I would say, an English, an English government. In that sense, I would say that uh, this is where I disagree with David a bit, is, is that our politics here has not pr pr proved itself rigid. It's actually proved itself that it's simply adapted to something, the nature of this emergency that required an English government. But this English government now has no constitutional authority to, to, to ground it um, in. So I think that at some point, I stress at some point because of how to deal with the different aspects of it is really quite hard. There will probably be referendums in order to try and sort out how you legitimate 
um, democratic authority in this union of the United Kingdom. That's what we talked about this earlier, muting yourself and forgetting. Uh, Katie, did you want to add something on this? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think Helen's right. We are seeing the effects now of referendums and then uh, Parliament trying to catch up or adapt. Um, but there are lots of issues there. I mean, I think we're going to see more referendums. I, you know, the Scottish independence question is the most obvious. But I think in terms of how we adapt... I, I think it goes a bit wider. For example, I think one of the things coronavirus has done is um, I think so many more people are now aware of the, you know, devolved settlement, how devolved issues work, who weren't previously. And I think that has made issues relating to referendums and referenda uh, more apparent too. So I, I do feel that looking over the past couple of months, it means that there in a way, I, I would use loose ends, but I just remembered that is what a cabinet secretary, uh, a cabinet minister used yesterday to describe the legal issues and um, potentially uh, relating to Brexit. But, you know, I think that there is this sense that everything as it currently is, is might function, but I think it's exacerbating issues, which will mean that there is a higher force or, uh, you know, push for referendums to look at those issues. I mean, that issue of what what people have learnt about us as a country over the course of the last few years is really. I mean, we we organised a citizens' assembly up in Manchester in 2017, as I recall. And in the first tea break, this elderly lady, she must have been in her 60s or 70s, came up to me and said, in a sort of, and just said, "I'm really worried about Henry VIII's powers." And I thought, wow, I mean, this Brexit is having a real educational impact on the British population that we're now going to start talking about uh, delegated legislation and its impacts on, on democracy. Then we've had a few questions on foreign policy, and I want to turn to that right at the end, because it seems to me we need to touch on some of the massive issues that, that Helen raised. But there's one thing I want to come back to, I mean, partly because it's something I'm a little bit obsessed with, which is the point Katie initially raised, which is, what are the economic policies of this government? Which way will this government head? Uh, is, is this genuinely going to be a completely new sort of conservative government? Are the numbers in Boris Johnson's favour if he wants to be a sort of tax and spending Tory prime minister? Or is that something that's going to get gridlocked because of divisions in his own coalition? They're all massively unanswerable questions. I know, Katie, I'm just sort of, I want to start with you and just get your opinion and maybe turn to Helen after that and see where she thinks the direction of travel. I mean, obviously there are a lot of unknowns, not least what the economy is going to look like, but. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that Boris Johnson does want to be tax and spend. I, th I think he wants to be spend, um, ultimately. And I think the treasury is looking at, um, you know, tax measures and others. And I think it was a really good point made earlier on um, about the fact that clearly if you look at the level of borrowing that we've just gone, you know, uh, if you playing around with a few tax bans is not something that's going to fix that. But the big question is, you know, day-to-day -day spending going forward. I think you have a situation where the Treasury, and I don't just mean that as, you know, what Tory MPs would describe as the institutional Treasury, I think the Chancellor too, um, does do take the view that you need to have a you know, fiscal competence um, going forward. And we heard that when Rishi Sunak spoke to MPs um, last week, Boris Johnson was by his side, but I do think that I wouldn't, I think you have to be careful how you talk about these things because it, quickly they become stories, you know, Chancellor versus Prime Minister. But I do think in terms of economic policy that I, I don't think number 10 
are necessarily in the same place as number 11. And we know from Boris Johnson's previous time as mayor of London, and um, you see the crash then that he likes to have a policy of growth. But how possible is that when we're currently in a situation where it's really hard to go back to even um, the measures that would you, you would usually want to have a normal functioning economy? Um, so I think that if you're looking at what this government's economic policy is, I think it's a really interesting question because it's just incredibly hard to pin down. But I think in terms of MPs and where they are, like everyone nowadays, in a way that you would not have expected what, like 10, 15 years ago, Tory MPs are most likely, if you bring up this issue, to talk about, you know, historically low borrowing rates. Um, you know, and actually this is fine, we can just keep borrowing. And I think the, the issue clearly is, and I think something the Treasury has looked at, is if you stress test what happens if interest rates change even slightly, the current situation the UK is in gets much more difficult. So I think there is eventually going to be a reckoning. Um, but I think the, where Tory MPs are for various reasons, I think they're so far away from anything that resembles austerity, you know, big mess cuts. Um, and that's for two reasons. First, you have the new intake. And lots of them actually are, you know, they, they feel like they are very strong conservatives, partly because lots of my local MPs from, you know, Redwall areas, and they grew up somewhere where it wasn't very cool to be a Tory. It might not be cool to be a Tory anywhere, um, but particularly in these areas, you know, you don't have, it, it was not a majority view. Um, but at the same time, I think they've all just campaigned on a manifesto where they said they were going to spend lots of money and they're going to be the high spend party. So they don't want to go anywhere near Cameron Osborne austerity. And then the other part of the Tory MPs, I think, which are like a, a loud group, are ultimately those who are stung from successive elections going out on the doorstep and getting the backlash. And they no longer think, they think it is politically toxic. So I don't think there's coherence on who carries the burden on what the long-term plan is, but I think that even if Rishi Sunak did want to bring in a, you know, a, a strict, not, you know, the tax horror show he said isn't coming, but even where he changed his mind and do that, I don't think this Tory party would wear it, and I doubt number 10 would either. There's a really interesting conversation to be had about just how local uh, some MPs are, how they see, really see themselves as local representatives in a way that perhaps wasn't the case always. I, before I come to you, Helen, I have to apologise sincerely to Nicola Murray for implying that 60 and 70 year olds were elderly. Sorry about that. I would have replied in writing, but I can't figure out how to do it on Slido. But Helen, on the economic question. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you can't really ask what the government's philosophy is going to be about um, managing the economy because it's simply going to be crisis managing the economy. Uh, it's not going to have the luxury, uh, you know, of having a particularly ideological view um, of what's um, what's going on. But in part for that reason, I think that that Boris Johnson is going to have an easy ch chance on this, or someone in his position is going to have an easy chance winning the argument against Rishi Sunak, um, and Sunak's going to have win winning the argument about taxes for some of the reasons that Katie says, but also because. The, the one thing that will concentrate the mind and give the, if you like, the we must do something about the debt advocates a chance will be if bond markets start making it harder for governments to to borrow. But at the moment, there's no there's no possibility of that. I think in the end that will happen. Um, but I don't think there's anybody's got any idea when that is likely to be. And for a long time uh, in the, you know, you could say is, is that George Osborne was still worrying i would say about the bond markets until sometime in 13 14 i think he'd given up, up upon it by um 2000 and um 
2015. But the fact is, is that in the end, after the first few years after the crash, is they did not act in any kind of disciplining way on what governments did either in Europe, um, once the Eurozone crisis was done, or at least once Draghi had made his whatever it takes um, speech, you know, or in the or, or in or in the United States, and you're simply not going to get to a politics of um, deficit reduction, let alone debt reduction, without that financial market constraint coming back. And given that what we have learned since 2008 suggests that it can be absent for really quite a long period of time, is why would any politician who's got to worry about winning the next election start thinking, okay, I better start from the premise that it will come back before the next general election? Because there's a real possibility that it won't. And can I just quickly say something, because it touches on what you said at the beginning, because we haven't talked about this. So say Biden wins. We're used to thinking that you know, it's Trump's America and whatever that tells us about the state of the world is to do with these big questions about populism and immigration and race and so on. But if Biden wins, which is a pretty good chance he might, um, then America becomes a, a place that people look for very different kinds of lessons, because he's winning on a, it has become now a big spending program. You know, there's a big commitment there to the government. Some of the questions that Helen's asked about what's the point at which the market starts to get really nervous. I mean, Biden is really, he's, he's also, he believes in spend, but there's some tax in that too. But there's big spending coming in the United States, probably. And I think British governments of whatever stripe are going to go back to that thing. I'm not looking to America as some kind of morality tale or warning of you know, what, how the world can go wrong. But what it used to be, maybe in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, the biggest, most powerful, richest democracy in the world, doing stuff that we, we may end up doing too and seeing how that works. I mean, a Biden presidency does make a big difference just in terms of where people look for lessons. Mm. Trump, you don't look for lessons, really. You just hope that you survive it. But Biden, you look for lessons. Interesting. I, I mean, and on, on the United, we've got a question from Robert Smith. I don't think there's an answer to this, which is why I'm going to put it to you. Uh, which is what is driving British foreign policy at present? And there have been a couple of other comments about, you know, how does Britain's world role evolve over the next decade? And can I start with you, Helen? I mean, just, I mean, you can riff around this if you want. You don't have to, I mean, I'm not sure there's a clear answer to the question, but you talked a lot about, you know, the geopolitics of this. How does the UK position itself now? Will we ultimately be forced by geography and common interest to actually collaborate a lot more with the EU on geopolitics than this government seems to want to do? Or is there, a, is there, an, is there another way? Well, I think you've got to draw a distinction between, between the issues, um, the big issues in, in, um, in geopolitics um, at the, the moment. And I'd say if you take sort of three that are featured quite strongly at, at different points um, since the, the, um, the pandemic, but obviously were um, there before as well, which would be um, China um, and the Hong Kong issue, Iran and the eastern, what's going on in the Eastern Mediterranean. I say on, on the Eastern Mediterranean that Britain doesn't seem to be particularly involved and the government doesn't seem to have, have taken a position, in very sharp contrast to what um, Macron's been doing, who's got something to say about what's going on in the East Mediterranean um, most days and, you know, deploys um, French naval um, power sometimes in, to match um, what he's saying. If you take the, the other two issues though, I think what, what's interesting is, is that during the, the pandemic that essentially on Iran, that the government has stayed relatively closely hugged to the EU position, including you know, not being willing to support Trump um, over the 
the UN arms embargo, which is coming to an end um, next um, month. But on the China and the Hong Kong issue is, is that the British government, particularly because of the Hong Kong question, has moved much closer to the American position um, than the EU position. And you can see that as well over the Huawei uh, issue, the fact that this is clearly not going to happen uh, in the UK, whereas Merkel seems still to be um, defending its, you know, it, its presence in German um, 5G network um, development. So it looks to me is, is that the, the, the British government's um, position is not to have it always. I, that, I, I don't, think, don't think that it's, that it's quite that, but not to be in a consistent position anyway of saying, okay, we're all in with um, the US now on these big geopolitical um, questions. And we're not on the on, on, on the EU side now. I think what's interesting on the U.S. election front is that the one area where probably who wins isn't going to make a great deal of difference is on the China question. It's not that there's not going to be changes in different emphasis between Trump and and Biden over that, but the U.S. is clearly not going back to the pre-Trump position where China is concerned. Um, that that China is going to be treated as a strategic um, competitor, a strategic, strategic rival. And the question then I think really will be for um, the EU is, is like, well, would Biden, whilst he was pushing for the US to be as confrontational on trade and technology as Trump has been, and potentially on Hong Kong as well, would he be more tolerant of the European states the EU in particular, having more independence from the US and dealing with the China question? Or is it going to be, or is he going to really stick to Trump's position there, which is, is you guys are going to shift, you guys are going to shift with us and we're going to use our financial um, power in order to try and try and ensure um, that you do. And I think that the way that that question turns out, if it were a Biden um, presidency, will have some consequences for Britain's positioning. Well, I suppose the third option is whether Joe Biden, because he's not Donald Trump, has greater power of persuasion when it comes to the Europeans and manages to take take him with, take them with him more consensually in terms of adopting a, a, a tougher position towards China. I think that that's pretty hard for the German position. I mean, the German yeah. position is, is so commercially entrenched in, in, in China, and both on the telecommunications issue and obviously on the car manufacturers. I don't think that they can be persuaded out of it by anybody. It's also, sorry, just very, it's interesting. We talk, we're comfortable talking about British foreign policy as though it were a single thing. In everything else, we've been aware that Scotland is increasingly becoming a separate country. And it could easily, on some of these issues too, I mean, that's an issue that would certainly come up in a Scottish referendum. Um, these, these foreign policy questions are big political questions mm -hmm. with domestic consequences, how you relate to the next American president or whoever it is. And British foreign policy, it's more coherent than British economic policy but it's not completely coherent scotland is another country mm. in fact i mean to be honest i'm not completely convinced we've actually had a foreign policy that's been in any way says way or sense thought through since the 2013 vote on syria i think since then it's been purely reactive uh and actually be interesting to see what comes out of this integrated review because you'd think that you'd have to have a vision of your role in the world before you carried that kind right. of I would just say briefly on that. I mean, I think that when you're looking at the various things this government wants to do from Brexit, and we didn't even get onto state aid earlier, and we were talking about um, the economy, which is obviously interesting in itself because lots of people thought 
the Tory argument for Brexit was going to be, you know, Singapore on the Thames. And now we're hearing about, um, you know, how this is all going to be held up on state aid. But I think where I think it's easier to work out the government's intentions, actually, I think there is, from the Vote Leave group, from people like Dominic Raab, I think there is a, what they see as a quite clear uh, foreign policy. I think that some coming up would describe it as an ethical foreign policy. Lots of people would point to previous things the UK has done with Saudi Arabia. But, um, but ultimately, I think if you look at Hong Kong and the offer of citizenship, I think foreign policy is where Boris Johnson believes that he can show that he is a liberal conservative still. People want to say he's a populist. I think that, you know, if you look at vote leave on EU nationals, things like that, wanting to guarantee the rights. Then we had Theresa May took a different stance. I think that although it's not uh, comprehensive and it can't be the only thing, I think that the foreign policy is viewed as somewhere where you can actually push a lot of those instincts and those ideas, and, and that's something they are going to try and do. Brilliant. On that note, I'm afraid we've run out of time. So let me just end this by saying, firstly, uh, thank you to the audience for joining and apologies for difficulties in joining this time. This is a bit of a trial run with Slido. We've had some teething problems that I've been made aware of in the Q&A column, not least, but uh, we'll learn from those mistakes and hopefully get better at that. Secondly, there's an online event survey uh, that we'd like you to fill in. If you can face it, that would be great, not least so we can learn from your experiences. And finally, last but not least, my heartfelt thanks to the three of you. I mean, to say that was wide ranging would be an understatement. At a minimum, it's given people plenty of food for the thought. And I hope that one day we can invite you all back and we can maybe look back on this conversation and look forward again and uh, reflect more on British politics, which let's face it, is a really interesting thing to be writing and researching on at the moment. So thank you all very, very much indeed. And I'll see you all soon. Take care.